Please be praying for that and consider what you can give to be a part of it as well. All right. Uh, we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3, looking at verses 1 to 9 this morning. A section that's called Godlessness in the Last Days, or I entitle it Living in the Last Days. And I'd like to read this passage for us as we begin. 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 9. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women, who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. And just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men opposed the truth, men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far, because as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word and how it speaks to our present day as well. And today we come to a passage that's difficult, that's hard to hear, hard to see happening in our world. And Father, we long for the day when, even as we sang earlier in the service, when your will will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. Father, help us to be a part of what you're doing that's just so good in our world and so exciting to see and to join with you in the work that you've called us to. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, several years ago, our family was down at the Science Museum in St. Paul, and we went to see this exhibit that was on Antarctica. And that's kind of, you know, this unknown continent at the bottom of the earth there, or as we think about it, being on the bottom, who knows really which side's up and which side's down in one way. But, um, you know, it's uh, this a continent that is just covered with snow and ice. In fact, while we are enjoying the longest days of the year right now, they're enjoying the shortest days, almost total darkness 24 hours a day with maybe just a little bit of twilight there. And it was interesting to see the work being done by the scientists and explorers who live there, uh, to see the variety of life that there is in the water and the sea around that area, uh, to see the seals and the uh, the uh, penguins and the walruses, and I always get a kick out of those penguins that come flying out of the water and land up on the ice, kind of just standing there and then waddle in. And uh, it was very interesting to see all of that. But the thing that struck me as I was looking at this, and I'm thinking about the people who live there, is how Antarctica is a dangerous place. It's an unforgiving place. I mean, you don't want to make any mistakes there because they could be fatal. In the summer along the coast, the temperature may get up to freezing, about 32 degrees. But in the winter, this time of year for them, you know, the temperature inland can drop to 100 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. 100 below zero. 
I mean, and the coldest temperature that was ever recorded there was a minus 126 degrees Fahrenheit. That's just nuts, you know, and you think about what that would do to even equipment. I kind of wonder how they build these things to sustain themselves and to be able to live there in the shelters that they have. At one of the exhibits, they showed the clothing that they wear if they're going to be there, and multiple layers, all designed to take moisture out and to keep heat in, and all of that is absolutely essential. Antarctica is a dangerous place, and if you were going to live there, you'd want to be prepared. Your survival would depend upon it. Well, in the passage that we're looking at today, Paul tells us that this world can be a dangerous place for our faith as well. That there are temptations, there are trials, there are challenges that we are going to face in this life as well. And as we move toward the time of Christ's return, we're going to see those struggles increase. And we all probably can think of people that we know who have walked away from the faith. That that's not just a statistic that you hear about where, you know, uh, teenagers, when they graduate from church, that some of them will walk away from the faith. We know children to whom that has happened. Or we can think of adults who used to be faithful in coming to church, but now are not coming. And something happened in their life that caused them to turn away. We're not immune either. Peter tells us that our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So be self-controlled and alert. Be on your guard against the schemes of the enemy. That's what this passage is about. It really stands in the middle of this letter to Timothy as a warning and a call to be aware, to be alert. So what can we do? What can we do when we face difficult times like this? Number one, we need to understand the times in which we live, and we see that in verse 1. He tells us, he says, but mark this. And that word mark means really, but know this, know this. That there will be terrible times in the last days. And the word terrible means dangerous, violent, or hard to deal with. The same word is used in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 8, 28 to describe the demoniacs that Jesus and the disciples encountered. These men who were demon-possessed and who were dangerous, who were violent, who were hard to deal with. Paul is saying that's how the last days will be. But when Paul speaks of the last days, there's both a present and a future aspect to it. I mean, he's writing to Timothy and he's warning him about things that were going to happen right then and there in their lifetime. There is this present aspect to the last days, but there's also a future aspect to it. On the one hand, we have been living in the last days since the time of Christ. When Peter spoke on the day of Pentecost and the people were wondering about what they had seen and heard with these believers who had been filled with the Holy Spirit and they now spoke in other languages, Peter stood up and he said, what you're seeing is what the prophet Joel told us about. In the last days, God said, I will pour out my spirit on all people and your sons and daughters will prophesy and your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. And so these signs that they witnessed happening in Jerusalem that day, Peter says, are a fulfillment. We are in the last days. 
the age of the church, this last stage in salvation history when men and women have an opportunity to come to know Jesus as their Savior and Lord. But there is another sense in which the last days are still to come and that everything we witness here is going to get worse before our Lord returns. Godlessness and lawlessness will increase. In Matthew 24, 21, the scripture said, For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. There's an increase in this intensity and the severity of things that will occur before our Lord returns. We read that, and that's, that's frightening. That's frightening to think about. You know, and in this world in which we live, there are these two things that are going on side by side. There's the work of God and the kingdom of God is advancing and that continues. And there is also Satan who is at work in our world and we see the presence of sin and evil. When we think about what's going on in terms of the work of the kingdom, I mean, it's really exciting to hear the reports of what God is doing all over the world. And we are part of that. I mean, we join in that work when we support Bible translation projects or church planting, sending out missionaries, pastoral training, community development, hunger relief, water projects, all those kinds of things that we are part of through the missions of the church. Uh, this week I was doing an update, too, on our, um, the number of missionaries that we've sent out. And in 27 years, we have supported and sent out 26 people from our church who have gone on into full-time ministry for at least two years. And they have, they have gone out to different parts of the world to serve, and several of those are career missionaries where it's a lifelong calling and someone out for two or three years to serve or longer term and then return. And it is just so cool to think about that. We have students that are in training right now in college and seminary preparing to go into full-time ministry. And we have a young couple in our church that's sensed God's call and have been accepted by Reach Global with the Evangelical Free Church to be involved in missions. And they're going to be sharing their story with us too. You know, and so all of that is going on and I feel like that's just under the radar in terms of the secular world. You know, you don't hear those stories in the news, but God's at work. People are coming to know Christ. Churches are being planted. God is at work, and the gospel is advancing. But on the other side, we see the presence of sin and lawlessness. We see terrorism. We see violence. We see wars, all of that happening. And it's like there's this steady drip of bad news that you hear. And it wears you down, and it can be discouraging at times to think about that and to hear what is happening and to think that all of this is going to increase. In 2 Thessalonians, for example, uh, Paul writes that this spirit of lawlessness that is already at work in the world, it's there, the spirit of the Antichrist that is to come. It's at work in the world. And there's only one thing that's holding it back. It's the restrainer. It is the presence of believers in this world. It is the presence of the Holy Spirit in this world that restrains that evil from being worse. And what will happen when that day comes when the church is raptured, when believers are taken up into the presence of the Lord and that presence of the Holy Spirit is removed? Well, you could see how very quickly this world would become a very dark and violent place. 
So what do we do? What do we do? We put everything we have into advancing the kingdom of God. We do what Jesus said. We work while it is still day, for night is coming when no man can work. And so we join with him, and we share in the work that he is doing, and we give God our very best. Because one day, this world as we know it is going to come to an end. And the opportunity to come to know Christ will pass and we will step into that eternal state that God is preparing for all of us. When David was called to be the king of Israel, there's a passage in the Old Testament that said that the men of Issachar joined with him in the work. And in 1 Chronicles 12, 32, it said this about them, that the men from Issachar understood the times and they knew what Israel should do. They understood what was happening in their kingdom, and they, they knew that their loyalty should be with God and with his king, David. And for us living in this last days, our loyalty is to be with Christ and his church and to give God our very best. Secondly, we are to turn away from evil, and we see that in verses 2 to 8. And we read here what can be kind of a depressing list describing man's sin. I understand that. And sometimes when we're having our quiet time, you know, we come to a passage like this, and we maybe want to read through it real quickly without uh, spending too much time there. And let's get on to something that seems a little bit brighter in the passage. Here Paul is talking about the false teachers and others in Timothy's day who had come in and were affecting them. But it's not limited to false teachers. It's not limited to just Timothy's period of time. But it is a description of the darkness of men's hearts. Paul is describing the hearts of godless men. And in verses 2 to 5, he describes their character. And in verses 6 to 8, he describes their conduct. And I want to just walk through it just a little bit, giving some definitions along the way. He tells us that in the last days, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. Do we see that in our world? People who are only concerned about themselves or what they make or their possessions? Yeah, we can see that. He talked about people that will be boastful, that is braggarts about what they have and do, or proud, showing themselves to be better than others. Ungrateful, that's the opposite of being thankful, and in particular, In terms of God, they see no need to give thanks because they think that everything that they have is something that they have earned or deserved themselves. Unholy, really it means secular. Without any thought of God, without any relationship with God or fellowship with Him. They are without love and it means without natural family affections. That in a family, it is natural. It's the way God designed it that, you know, parents should love their children, children should love their parents, or husbands would love their wives, and wives would love their husband. It's designed to be that way. That family unit is to be the basic building block of our society, and there should be those relationships where people care about one another. But he's saying that that's not going to happen in that way. That in the last days and with these individuals, those relationships will be broken. Unforgiving means irreconcilable. They're the kind of person who holds a grudge 
wants to get even, doesn't care about being reconciled or settling those differences in an honorable way, they're going to get theirs. Slanderous, falsely accusing others, without self-control, and that refers to bodily lust. The kind of person who just simply follows their passions, their lusts, their desires, whatever they may be. Brutal, meaning savage or fierce. And you can think of the murders and crimes that we hear about in the news, or you can think about what is shown in TV and movies today and how graphically some of these things are portrayed or how twisted the crimes are that they talk about. Not lovers of the good. They love what is evil. Treacherous, traitors, betrayers, rash, meaning hasty and reckless. Conceited. It's all about me. It's all about my needs, my wants, my desires. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They place self at the center of their affections. And yet here's the really crazy part. It says that they have a form of godliness but deny its power. They are religious in one sense. They have a form of religion, but it's a little bit like, you know, thinking of a gang member or a mobster going to church, you know, and going, well, that was then, this is now, you know, I'm okay with God, and, you know, that's the other part of my life, as though there's no connection between the two. They have a form of religion, a form of godliness, but deny its power, and Paul says, have nothing to do with them. Have nothing to do with them. Wow. Wow. That is a graphic description of sin. And when you look at that list in the scripture in those verses, I mean, doesn't that list alone make you want to be a Christian? <laughs> you know, when you think about the world in which you'd like to live, would you like to live in a world that's fallen and depraved and where people act like that? Or would you rather live in a world where people have been changed by the power of God and their lives are being transformed? I mean, think about the difference that Christ makes in a person's life when you read verses like Galatians 5, 22 and 23. It says that the fruit of the Spirit, God's Spirit, is love, and it's joy, and it's peace, and it's patience. It's kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. But those are the things that you can do with increasing measure, and they are good things that bear fruit not only in our life but in our world. That's what Christ wants to produce in us. And I think about this, you know, say uh, you take your family down to see a Twins game. And you're, you're there to watch a baseball game and you park in one of the downtown ramps in Minneapolis, you know, and the game maybe goes a little late and you hang in there to the end to see whether or not the Twins are going to win. And so it's late when you leave and you're walking from the game back to where you parked your car. And you have to go through this alley along the way to get there, you know, and say so you walk into this alley and out step four men out of a dark alley and you're kind of wondering, you know, is this a good situation or not? Would it make any difference to you if you knew that those men had just come from a Bible study? You know, yeah, it would. I mean, you know, you'd be going, oh man, great. You know, that's, that's good. And it's that kind of thing that, that we see and we understand the difference that Christ makes in a person's life. But the world doesn't get it. 
somehow thinks that through maybe education or more laws or more rules that we can enforce these things and change the behavior of people. When the only thing that can change the people of, or the behavior of people is a heart change. A heart change, a new relationship with Jesus Christ. And look at their conduct in verses 6 to 8. And this is just one example that Paul gives because it was something that was occurring in that situation. He said, These depraved men are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. Now please note, Paul is not saying that all women are weak-willed. That's not what this passage is saying. He's talking about women who perhaps had come out of a life of prostitution or who were immoral women and who were weighed down by those sins. They're feeling guilty already. They're feeling ashamed of what they have done. And these evil men take advantage of them. And they come and they they have this form of godliness, you know, and they tell them things, you know, to kind of charm them or to bring them into their fold and they take advantage of them. It's awful what they are doing. In fact, he says that these men are just like Jonas and Jambres who oppose Moses. Now that's an interesting reference. Jonas and Jambres are not mentioned in the scripture by name. But in Jewish legend, they were the names given to two of the Egyptian magicians who opposed Moses in Pharaoh's court. Remember when Moses came and he'd say to Pharaoh and he'd say, let my people go. And, and uh, you know, he uh, performed the miracles there, the staff that turned to a serpent. And these Egyptian conjurers tried to do the same thing. And so they turned their staffs into serpents. And Moses' snake ate theirs. And then he picked it up and it became a staff once again. These men oppose Moses and these false teachers are just like them in their line. They oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. Men of depraved mind. The root problem is with their affections, that they are lovers of self rather than lovers of God. But it causes me to ask the question for all of us, who is on the throne of our life? Is it self or is it Christ. You know, for many years, Gail and I were on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, and if you've ever used the four spiritual laws, you know that when you come to the end of it, it asks you the question, you know, basically, who's on the throne in your life? And it pictures there a circle with self on the throne, and, you know, when self is on the throne and Christ is outside a person's life, you know, we're making all the calls. We're making all the decisions about what we're going to do, and it's all about me. But when we come to know Christ in a genuine way, that Christ-centered life is where self has yielded the throne to him. And Jesus is not only Savior, but he's Lord of our life, and we give everything to him. And when Christ is in control of our life, what he does is he begins to put all those other areas into perspective and into alignment with his word. Our relationship with God, our use of our gifts, our use of our money, our time, our service, our interests, our hobbies all come in line with God's will for our life. 
You know, a week ago, uh, Saturday night, uh, Gil and I had been to a wedding and we uh, left the reception to go home. I always, Saturday night to me is important. And so I don't like to stay out uh, late on a Saturday night. And I go home because I review the message. I look over the notes for Sunday. I pray for the service. I pray for all of you who'll be coming here. And I just want to get my heart right with God and then make sure I get a good night's sleep because I want to be at my best on Sunday morning when I come and I share God's Word. And so that's been a habit, you know, for 27 years now. And so sometimes, you know, if you invite me to something and I leave early or I don't come, that's why. Because Sunday's that important to me. But I'm driving back and, you know, I'm thinking out loud as I'm talking to Gail. And I had no idea of this message coming up, but I'm driving along and we're going by South Chisago Lake and I see a guy out there in a boat. And in my kind of musing, I'm thinking, you know, if I wasn't a Christian, if God hadn't called me to ministry, I would be a very different person. And I'd probably be out on that boat too. I'd probably be fishing a lot more. Think about that, how the weekend would be for me. You know, I, I wouldn't be getting up on a Sunday morning to go to church. Uh, I certainly wouldn't be tithing. I'd probably spend that money on things that were hobbies or toys or interests that I had. And I'd be a very self-centered person. And my world would be a lot smaller. You know, it'd, it'd be about me. It'd be about the things that I was interested in doing. And I thought about all those things and I said, thank God for his grace. Thank God for his grace Thank God for the way he changed my life. He enlarged my world. He changed my whole focus and perspective on what is important in life and what's going to last for eternity. But even more than that, thank God that he forgave my sins and he made me a new person in Christ. Because he changes us. And you know, the honest reality for all of us is that every day we have to make choices about, okay, who's going to be on the throne today? You know, am I going to use my, my gifts, my talents, my time in a way that honors him? Lord, here I am. Use me. Am I going to live in a way where I say no to sin? I say yes to Jesus. I don't listen to what the world views in terms of its values and its priorities, and I don't follow that, but I follow the priorities that God gives in his word. And that's really what this third point is about. It's a call to live for the day. To live for the day. And I capitalize that because I'm talking about that day of the Lord. The day when Christ returns. In verse 9 it says this. Paul says to Timothy, hey, you know what? Those guys aren't going to get very far. Because as in the case of those men, meaning Jonas and Jambres, their folly will be clear to everyone. The day is coming when the books are going to be opened and everybody's going to see, you know, what's happened in a person's life. The day is coming when we will all stand before the Lord to give an account for our life. In 2 Corinthians 5.10 it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. And so the books will be open and how we lived our life, the priorities that we had, the choices we make, it's all going to be there. 
And sometimes we can, in this life, you know, look at the world and we look at those who don't God and we think that, you know, they don't have any struggles or things are going well for them or looking at the things that they own or have and maybe you can be envious. Maybe you can be thinking, you know, well, why can't I have some of those things too or why can't I do that? And we can struggle with those questions. We wonder sometimes when we see the sin in our world and how evil men seem to get away with that, how can God let that go? How can he see all of those things? Why doesn't he act more quickly? We can be like Asaph, who wrote Psalm 73. And he wrestled with questions like, why do the wicked prosper? And does it really pay to follow the Lord? And in verses 16 to 19 of that psalm, he said this, When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground and you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. The day's coming. Live for the day. Live for the day knowing that your work in him is never in vain. That the choice that you have made to follow Christ, to put him on the throne of your life, to give your best for him, that day's coming when all of that will be rewarded. But for those who don't know Christ, it will be a terrible day, a day of judgment and the loss of everything. I want to share with you this morning a, a story that's kind of a modern-day parable it's called The Tale of the Tardy Ox Cart. It was uh, a story that Chuck Swindoll shared, and I want to read it for you. There was once a fellow who, with his dad, farmed a little piece of land. And several times a year, they would load up the ox cart with vegetables and go to the nearest city to sell their produce. Except for their name and the patch of ground, though, this father and son had little in common. The father believed in taking life easy, enjoying life to the fullest, and enjoying the relationships that he had. The boy was usually in a hurry. He was the go-getter type who wanted to make a lot of money and get on in his life. And so one morning, bright and early, they hitched up the ox, loaded the cart, and started on the long journey. The son figured that if they walked faster, kept going all day and night, they'd make market by early the next morning. So he kept prodding the ox with a stick to see if it would go faster. And the father said, take it easy, son. You'll last longer. But if we get to the market ahead of the others, we'll have a better chance of getting good prices, argued the son. No reply. The dad just pulled his hat over his eyes and took a little nap on the seat. Itchy and irritated, the young man kept goading the ox to walk faster, but the stubborn ox refused to change its pace. Four hours, four miles later down the road, they came to a little house. The father woke up and smiled and said, Hey, here's your uncle's place. Let's stop in and say hello. But we've lost an hour already, complained the son. Well, then a few more minutes won't matter. My brother and I live so close, yet we see each other so seldom. The boy fidgeted and fumed while the two old men laughed and talked away almost an hour. On the move again, the man took his turn leading the ox, and as they approached a fork in the road, the father led the ox to the right. Well, the left is the shorter way, said the son. I know, replied the old man, but this way is much prettier. 
Have you no respect for time? The young man asked impatiently. Oh, I respect it very much. That's why I like to use it to look at beauty and enjoy each moment to the fullest. The winding path led through graceful meadows, wildflowers, along a rippling stream, all of which the young man missed as he churned within. Preoccupied and boiling with anxiety, he didn't even notice how lovely the sunset was that day. And twilight found them in what looked like a huge, colorful garden. The old man breathed in the aroma, listened to the bubbling brook, pulled the ox to a halt and said, let's sleep here tonight. The son said, this is the last trip I'm taking with you. You're more interested in watching sunsets and smelling flowers than in making money. Why, that's the nicest thing you've said in a long time, smiled the dad. <laughs> a couple of minutes later, he was snoring as his boy glared back at the stars. The night dragged slowly and the sun was restless. Before sunrise, the young man hurriedly shook his father awake. They hitched up and went on. And about a mile down the road, they happened upon another farmer, a total stranger, trying to pull his cart out of a ditch. Let's give him a hand, whispered the old man. And lose more time, the boy exploded. Relax, son. You might be in a ditch sometime yourself. We need to help others in need. Don't forget that. And the boy looked away in anger. It was almost 8 o'clock that morning by the time the other cart was back on the road, and suddenly a great flash of light split the sky, and what sounded like thunder followed. Beyond the hills, the sky grew dark. Looks like a big rain in the city, said the old man. If we had hurried, we'd almost be sold out by now, said the son. Take it easy. You'll last longer and you'll enjoy life so much more, counseled the kind old gentleman. Well, it was late afternoon by the time they got to the hill overlooking the city, they stopped and they stared down at it for a long, long time. And neither of them said a word. And finally, the young man put his hand on his father's shoulder and said, I see what you mean, Dad. And they turned their cart around and began to roll slowly away from what had once been the city of Hiroshima. Be patient and wait. Understand the times in which we live. Understand what God is doing in our world. And turn away from evil and do good. Live by his priorities, not the world. Live for the day and stay faithful. Let's pray. Father, in our life too, we can have those times when we feel so rushed. I feel like all these things that we have to do and cram into our day are just so important and so essential. And you want us to be a people that put you first on the throne of our life, who care about the people around us and who take the time that we need to minister to one another. Father, I pray that you would help us all to honor you in the way that we use our time and our gifts and our talents to live for that day because our work in the Lord is not in vain when we do that. And Father, I thank you that again, we do not travel this journey alone, but we have our brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage us, to remind us of what is important. And thank you for these times of worship when we come into your presence 
And we really can realign our compass once again to what is true north. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.